Amen. How we doing, Salt Company? All right, come on. It's the last one. You got to bring a little more hype than that. How we doing, Salt Company? Better. Love it. Love seeing a few Celtics jerseys in the room. It's game six. You know I love you because I'm here right now. Uh, it's the last salt of the year. It's been said probably five times tonight, but I think for me it's bittersweet because anytime we hit an end of a semester, an end of a school year, we're just called to pause and reflect, really look back and see the faithfulness of God. And I think the reality is in this room, there's a lot of things that have happened in the last semester. There's people that have gone from death to life spiritually that you have trusted in Jesus for the first time. And for that, all of heaven rejoices and we get to rejoice with you. That's an awesome thing. But for some of you, like you have just gone through the hardest semester of your life maybe the hardest year of your life. And I just want to say the fact that you're in this room tonight is a testament to God's faithfulness to you, that he has, he has kept you and he continues to keep you through a really challenging season. And some of us are maybe on the other end of the spectrum where it's like, man, you have seen God do amazing things in your life. He's provided for you in a lot of really sweet ways, a lot of open doors. And I just want to say every good and perfect gift is from above. So anything good that's happened to you in your life is not a byproduct of chance, but is a byproduct of God's great love for you. And so what a gift to be with you. Special shout out to honestly, all of our student leadership team, anybody that has volunteered. Yeah, give it up for them. Um, we have a lot of people that volunteer on a weekly basis. Sometimes you see them up here. Sometimes they're behind the scenes, uh, you know, in the tech booth. If you have been a part of a connection group and have led the hospitality team with those crazy this or that signs, I just want to say thank you. Like our ministry honestly runs on people serving, volunteering, giving of their time. And I just want to read this verse to you who have served in any capacity in our ministry. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So even if you have shown up some weeks and you're like, man, I feel like nothing is happening, or maybe you thought nothing of the fact that you stood at a front door and held it for somebody, the fact that you are laboring in the Lord means that it's not in vain. So God used you in some way, shape, or form to help bring people closer to him. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, and it's honestly no coincidence that tonight we're talking about the holy habit of serving, serving. So how many of you guys know what serving is? Raise of hands. All right. You might not know this. There are so many definitions of serving. I, I found this out. I went on a deep dive. So serving could be giving a food or drink at a meal. You know, somebody has served you. Uh, it could be hitting a ball to start play. Any uh, volleyballers in the room? Okay. Tennis? Yeah. Okay. So serving. Uh, it could be telling somebody off or embarrassing them, right? You just got served. Uh, it could be spending time in prison. So maybe that's what we're talking about tonight. Hopefully not. Uh, we don't want to make a holy habit of spending time in prison. Here's what we want to do. We want, to, we want to make a holy habit of serving, and here is the definition, to act as a servant, to act as a servant, to work for or to help another. And maybe you are more holy than me, uh, but here's what I know to be true about serving. It doesn't excite me frequently. 
if I'm, if I'm just being honest with you. Like, serving is something that I know I should do, but oftentimes it's like knowing you should do something is not enough to get you excited about doing it. So I'm going to read uh, two verses for you in Galatians 5. They'll be up on the screen. God's Word says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Who doesn't love a little freedom? Come on. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. It's like, here's the great news. In Jesus Christ, you have been set free. You have freedom. And I'm like, that's great. That's what everybody wants in this life is like, give me some freedom. But if you came to me and said, Jordan, you have a free weekend. What do you want to do? <laughs> Not serve other people, right? Like, Jordan, you have a free weekend. What do you want to do? Here's what I probably want to do. I want to go golfing with friends. I want to eat good food. Maybe take a little drive, go on a mini vacation and get away from serving. Um, but what this passage might be saying is, hey, here's what your freedom could be used for. Helping a friend move your day off. Use that to clean the house for your wife. Volunteer at a church on a Sunday. Like, this idea of serving for me is like, ooh, that's what my freedom is for, to like give myself away, not to be selfish. And that's part of the reason that we need to make serving a habit is because we have a selfish bend Hopefully you've figured that out throughout this entire Holy Habit series is we need help, we need structure, we need discipline because we are a danger to ourselves. We don't establish habits to work our way to God. God has made himself known to us and has saved us by grace through faith. It's not our own doing, but here's what's true. If you're human, your bend is not to follow God, but to live for yourself. So we need habits to build some structure into our life to fight against selfishness. But here's what's true. While many of us shy away from serving because we're selfish, there's also people in this room that move towards serving because you're selfish. That's hard. That serving in itself can become a selfish ambition. I've seen this in my own life, maybe you have too, right? You go and you do something good. Maybe you're volunteering at a food bank, or maybe you're doing something really simple like helping somebody push their truck up a hill outside. That happened tonight, okay? And your initial response is, who noticed? Did anybody thank me? Maybe you've volunteered throughout your college career to build your resume so that you could get a job. It's all about you. Maybe you've served just waiting for somebody to say thank you back to you. And maybe you've done something, initially what you thought was for good intent, but the second somebody didn't thank you or didn't recognize you, you were disappointed. And so, as we dig in tonight, I really want to look at serving from two different angles. The first is this, how do we develop a habit of serving? Because we know that oftentimes our selfishness makes us shy away from serving altogether. But much more than that, how do we develop a holy habit of serving? Knowing that oftentimes our selfishness makes even our regular acts of service self-seeking. So we're not just talking about how do we go do the thing, but how do we go do the thing with the right motivation? 
because our heads know that we should serve. You've been told even outside of the church that you should serve other people. And we have health, we have hands, we have feet that are able to go and do the thing that we should do, but we have a heart issue. And so, how do we get to the heart of serving in a way that God would say honors him? Or how do we develop a holy habit of serving? We're going to be in the book of John, so if you have a physical Bible, go there with me. John chapter 13. Uh, John is a gospel. It is a testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus. And actually, chapter 13 is kind of halfway through this book. So catching you up on where we've been, we're exposed to the person and work of Jesus. He is identified as the Messiah, the Son of God. He's performed incredible miracles, right? Greatest party trick ever, water to wine. He's healed lepers. He's fed the 5,000. He's raised Lazarus a literal human being, one of his friends, he's raised him from the dead. And now this plot is starting to unroll. And by the time we get to John 13, Jesus is about to be arrested and killed. John 13 starts this last night before Jesus is crucified. And so we're going to read John 13, starting in verse 1 through verse 17. Verses will be up on the screen. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never Wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands in my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All right, place yourself in this setting. We're talking thousands of years ago in the Middle East, hot, dusty, disgusting. Like, this is not the day of Air Force One and electric cars. These people were walking miles and miles daily. Like, 
oftentimes they would span, you know, 60 miles in a matter of a few days. Their feet are disgusting. And let's be real. Feet are disgusting enough the way they are, aren't they? Like, anybody in here have a real problem with feet? Thank you. I'm not the only one. Okay, Fun, funny fact uh, about me. I've gotten a pedicure. That might shock you. Um, so, I was... I was big into marathon running a few years ago, and my wife is like, you know what you should do is you should go get a pedicure. I'm like, okay, sounds kind of feminine, but sign me up. So I go, and I sit down at this place to get a pedicure, and I had three dead toenails, and my feet were nasty, because like, I'm running ridiculous mileage, and this lady looks at my feet like she has never seen any more disgusting feet in her life, and I'm like, I am so sorry. She was really gracious. The one question she asked me is what color of nail polish I wanted, to which I said, no, thank you. But feet are disgusting in and of themselves, and Jesus is stooping down to wash their disgusting feet. But what we need to know is this is not just a gag-worthy job that Jesus is doing. He is crossing barriers that make no sense to his disciples because foot washing was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. And it was oftentimes to be done at the entrance of the house, not during a meal. So by the time Jesus is now sitting down with his disciples, nobody has stepped forward to wash anybody's feet as an act of hospitality. Jesus says, okay, if no one's going to do it, clearly I'm going to. Right? Puts aside his outer garment, puts a towel on his waist, and he stoops down and puts himself in the position of a slave. The Lord of the universe, the Son of God, stoops down, washes his disciples' disgusting feet, and positions himself as a slave. And now you might understand why Peter is offended, right? He says, no, do not wash my feet. It's not like he had a foot problem, too. He's saying, Jesus, what are you doing? You are Lord. Why are you acting like a slave? And what Jesus is trying to help Peter and the other disciples understand is they don't understand really what's going on. Because this is not just a one-time action. He is trying to peel back the curtain of a greater spiritual reality. And the first is this that Jesus is showing his purpose in revealing the nature of God. He's just revealing the true nature of God. When you get to the tail end of our section, he asks them, do you understand what I've done to you? In a way that they should be able to say, yes, I do understand what you have done to us. And he tells them, I'm setting an example for you. If I, Lord and teacher, can stoop down and wash your feet... You ought to do that for one another. I'm setting an example, and I'm showing you the nature of God, which is God is sacrificial. He is a serving God who stoops down to serve humanity. I mean, the fact that Jesus himself put on flesh, stepped out of heaven, right, and put on flesh shows that we serve a God that is a servant to us. That's the nature of God this sacrificial love. But much more than just showing the nature of God, Jesus is trying to reveal to them the work of God. In fact, the most 
specific and amazing work of God that they actually can't begin to wrap their minds around. In verse 7, he says, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will. And when he says afterward, he's not talking about after I'm done washing your feet. He's talking about after I accomplish what I was sent for, which is to live a perfect human life and to die a criminal's death and to resurrect, to defeat sin, death, and Satan three days later. He is saying this simple act of washing your feet is meant to point you to a greater cleansing, a greater act of self-sacrifice and service and cleaning, which is this. Jesus put on flesh, lived the life you couldn't, and died the death that you deserved to cleanse you from the greatest sickness you have, which is sin itself. That Jesus would become a servant, right? Philippians 2 talks about God in Christ, Jesus Stepping down out of heaven, though he is equal with God, does, now, does not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he becomes a human. And not just a human, but a slave, a servant. And that he would serve you, not just in washing your feet, to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand, you need cleanse, not just your feet, but your heart. And you get into this maybe confusing section here in the middle where he's talking about who needs to be washed and who doesn't need to be washed. But what you can miss in that is a really simple reality. Jesus washed Judas's feet. He knew that Judas was going to betray him and he knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. And guess what? He still did. He washed their feet. But that doesn't mean that Judas is ultimately saved by the work of God. And that doesn't necessarily, just because feet were clean, doesn't necessarily mean Peter is saved by the work of God. But here's what he tells them in verses 10 and 11. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So he is acknowledging the fact that though he has come, though he has cleansed feet, though he has showed himself to be the sacrificial, loving son of God, there is still one who says, no thank you. That's Judas. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't pursue him. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't still love him in his pursuit. It's that Judas is stepping back and saying, hey, all the love, all the sacrifice you've offered for me, no thank you. But here's what he tells Peter. He says, you know, Peter's trying to get him to, like, give him a bath, apparently. Like, just wash all of me. And he's like, here's what's true, Peter. I know your heart. You've trusted in me as the Messiah. You don't need to get saved all over again, okay? This idea of being saved from your sin is an act of faith for you to say, Jesus, I am no longer trusting in myself to work my way to you, but I am trusting in the reality that you came to me. And now my right standing before God is not based upon my spiritual resume, but the perfect work you have accomplished for me. Peter has already placed his faith in Jesus, but here's what Jesus tells Peter. He says, 
you don't need to get cleansed all over again, all the time, but you're going to keep needing your feet to get washed. And so if you're a Christian in this room, here's the reality. It's not just you put your faith in Jesus one time and you move on with the rest of your life. It's this constant returning to Jesus to say, Jesus, I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Will you forgive me and make me new? That's what he's telling Peter. And so we are extended this great invitation. I want to read a passage in Romans for us. Romans 5 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified or made right with God by his blood, much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is an invitation to you, Salt Company. You, you now know, because the word of God has told you, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice in your place. And he has died and has resurrected, has come back to new life to offer you an invitation to be in a right relationship with God that you cannot earn yourself. And so I'm, I'm pleading with you, do not be Judas, right? Consider yourself a Peter, someone who has failed, will fail, but ultimately your trust is not in your ability to get it right, but Jesus' ability to get it right for you. But he washes their feet while they're enemies, right? Like, knowing what they're about to do, knowing that they're about to turn their back on a God who has given himself to serve them, the invitation is to cling to him. And so, if you have been saved by Jesus, here's a really simple reality that we miss frequently. We're called to rejoice, to worship, right? That was one of our holy habits, like worship God. The fact that he has saved you, he knows the deepest, darkest corners of your heart, and he still looks at you and says, you are mine. I love you. That should be enough reason for us to rejoice. We rejoice in the fact that Christ sacrificed for us. He has saved us, and so our only appropriate response is to say, if the Son of God can stoop down and serve me, I think the least I can do is obey him by serving other people. If you rejoice in his sacrifice for you, that will lead you to serve other people. But think about this. What would enable Jesus to do this? Right, the fact that he is the Son of God, the fact that he is Lord and Master, the fact that he could have, in many ways, not done what he did and still seen the will of God accomplished, right? Like, he chooses to step in and make himself a servant. The question is, what would enable Jesus to be able to do this? And I want you to know that Jesus didn't just act like a servant, he had a servant's heart. And you know that? You know how that's possible? How we know that that's true? Is because the second that Jesus was treated like a servant, he still did it. I think that's a gut check, right? Fresh out of college, 
I had a little bit of youth ministry experience, and I started attending a new church. And in many ways, I came to their church leadership team, and I said, hey, I want to serve. Specifically, I said, I want to serve college students. I would love the opportunity to disciple some young college Jews and help them follow Jesus. And I got nothing. And two months in, I had one of the elders of the church come to me and say, hey, Jordan, I just, you know, I've been thinking about you. I know that you wanted to serve our church. Our five- and six-year-old classroom needs a little help. Wow. That's a gut check. It's like, oh, you want to serve? Okay, go hang out with five- and six-year-olds. That was a gut check for me because then the question is, did I really want to serve God or did I want to serve me? That became real when the, the challenge was, okay, I'm going to treat you like a servant. Go hang out with little kids. And here's, here's the underlying reality of how Jesus was able to step in and stoop down. We've got to look back at our passage, John 13, looking at verses 3 through 5. It says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands... And that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want to look specifically at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to to God. Jesus was incredibly secure in his identity. He knew exactly who he was. He knew that he had nothing to prove and no one to impress because here's what's true. He knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. He knew that he had come from God. He knew that heaven was his home, that he stepped down with already the acceptance of the Father, and he knew that even though the next day he would be crushed and killed and betrayed, he knew he was going back to God. He knew that the Father would still delight over him and place him at his right hand. And here's what we need. We need security. So many of us in this room are so insecure, whether we recognize it or not. And it's based upon the fact that we don't know where we came from or we don't know where we're going. Because here's what's true. If you knew where you came from, if you knew that there is a creator God who formed you in your mother's womb, who knew every hair on your head, and who would create you in his image, the pinnacle of creation in Genesis is not mountains, is not oceans, is not galaxies, it is mankind. That God, in his perfect knowledge, would create us in his image. That's where you came from. That's where you get value and dignity and worth is the fact that you were made by God and for God. And here's what's also true. You can know where you're going you can know where you're going. What we do with Jesus actually gives us the ability to say, I know that I'm going to heaven. 
And that's not an arrogant, selfish boast. That is us boasting in the cross of Christ. That we can say, I know that God delights in me, not because I have done good things, but because Jesus has done good things in my place. And so if you know where you came from, that you're created in the image of God, and you know that one day you will stand before God and he will look at you and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. You can stoop to the lowest place because you're not in it for recognition. You don't need other people to applaud. You don't need other people to pat you on the back. And in fact, even if nobody recognizes you here on earth, there is somebody who recognizes you, and his name is God. Right? This takes me back to several holy habits ago when we talked about Bible reading and prayer and fasting. There's this warning about practicing your righteousness in front of other people, but the benefit is in that text, there's not just a call to not practice your righteousness to be seen by other people. There's the promise that you're already seen by God who is in heaven. That should be enough for us. And so if we want to serve and not just have a habit of serving, but a holy habit of serving, this will require us to embody the upside-down nature of the kingdom. In Matthew 20, there's a couple chumps who start, you know, they bring their mom into it. I don't know why, but they start arguing about wanting to be great in the kingdom of God. And... This mom goes to Jesus, and she's like, hey, my sons deserve to be at your left and your right. Like, my sons deserve to be great in the kingdom of God. And then the disciples start arguing. And here's what Jesus says to them, Matthew 20. It says, Jesus called to, to them, the disciples, and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Essentially, the leaders in this world view authority as something to be grasped, and they want to lord it over you. But here's what he says, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. If you want to be great you give yourself away. And if you want to serve in such a way that honors God, you don't do it for the applause of mankind. You do it to be seen by God. You do it quietly, you do it humbly, and you do it worshipfully, not so that people recognize you, but so that people recognize him. And so, the question we asked at the beginning is, how do we develop a holy habit of serving? I would say the holy habit of serving requires you to rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ and remember your security in Christ. Rejoice in the sacrifice of Christ to look first at the fact that you have been served, you have been saved by the God of the universe, and then secondly, with that, out of the overflow of what Jesus has done for you, there is already a God in heaven who looks down at you and says, you are mine, I love you, well done, good and faithful servant, even if no one else recognizes you. That's what it looks like to serve God and serve others in a way that is righteous and is honoring to the Lord. And so, here's how we need to begin applying this. A few things. Number one, 
Stop trying to clean yourself up. Like, honestly, in this passage, John 13, he uses cleaning language, and I think oftentimes we think our good works clean us up. It's all in vain, all right? Your good works do not clean you up. You need to stop and recognize that you can't clean yourself, but there is one who has cleansed you, one who offers you the cleaning you really need. His name is Jesus Christ. So stop trying to earn God's favor and receive God's favor, And secondly, stop settling for the recognition of man and be secure in your gospel identity. Stop caring so much about what the people around you think. Stop living for likes on social media and understand that there is a God who looks down on you and smiles. And then from those two realities, from stopping trying to cleaning yourself up and stopping settling for the recognition of man, there's one thing we need to start doing, and that's serving. Start serving from the overflow. Serving from the overflow of what God has done for you in the person work of Jesus. And here's where I want to go back to that Galatians 5 text. You know, God's given you freedom. Great. Don't view your freedom as first and foremost for you. Use your freedom to serve other people, right? Don't use your time, your talents, and your treasures to say, how can I make this kingdom all about me? But to say, how can I make this kingdom all about Jesus? So if you have free time, if you have extra money, if you have giftings, like if you're a handyman, if any of you guys know how to change your oil, here's, here's my plea. I need an oil change, you know? Like, Start looking for opportunities to serve other people because God has gifted you with a unique personality, unique giftings, a unique stage and season of life for you to give yourself away. And I want to say this. We're actually called to prioritize serving the people of God. There's a ton of talk in the world and really in the Christian sphere of, you know, how can we serve other people? How can we serve our community? How can we serve the lost? How can we serve the homeless? And I'm, I'm here to say, yes, do that. I'm not telling you that I don't care about the world outside the church. Here's what I am saying. We are called to prioritize the people of God. That we would actually serve in here in such a way that does serve out there. Because if you keep reading in John 13, here's what he says. In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus is saying, here's how the world will encounter me and will know that you are with me by the way you love your faith family. Maybe that looks like serving in your local church on a Sunday morning. To stop saying, how can I make Sunday morning all about me and minimizing the amount of time that I have to come in these doors. Maybe you need to serve in a kid's classroom. Maybe you need to hand out bulletins. Maybe you need to step up and begin serving your church family. But maybe it just looks like during the week, if you're in a connection group, remembering other people throughout your week. And thinking about, wow, what do they have going on in their life? Is there anything that I can help them with? 
make yourself available to serve your friends who are following Jesus. Because this is what's sweet, Saul Company. In verse 17 of our text, it says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So on one hand, he's like, guess what? If you start serving, guess who gets the blessing? You. It's like, blessing comes to you. You end up closer to God. You end up experiencing blessing as you just obey God by serving other people. But here's what's also true. The blessing doesn't stop with you. Blessing comes to you to go through you to other people. Sometimes that's to your community. And sometimes... It's to a lost and watching world. And I just want to tell you, there have been so many people, I've been doing ministry here for four years, who have gotten connected to Salt Company or connected to Veritas Church. And here's what brought them in. They said, I just love the way you guys hang out. (laughs) I just couldn't believe how much you guys cared for each other. I just love the way that you guys did community. And these are people that wanted nothing to do with Jesus. They just said, I just want real friends who will actually care about me. And then here's what's happened. Many of them have come to know Jesus. And for that, we rejoice. And so I was talking with a few people uh, before we got started about summer salt. You know, we do salt company in the summer. And in some ways, it's laid back. It's chill. We want to have fun. But here's what happens in summer. People want to hang out. People want friends. People want to be seen. People want to be known. And so though it might not seem hyper-spiritual to say, hey, how can we find pockets in friend groups to hang out and care for each other this summer? Here's what might happen. You might get to see God change somebody's eternity because you befriended them. I don't know about you, but that excites me. And so maybe... Just maybe, if we would start to serve the people of God, we would get to see God save people and begin to turn our city and our campus upside down. That more and more people would worship God based simply on the fact that we have responded to the fact that he's served us. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. We'll respond in worship. Father God, thank you for this true, real, historic event that Jesus would stoop down, would become a slave and wash his disciples' feet. But thank you that it points to a much greater reality. One that in the moment the disciples could not see, but now we, 2,000 years ago, get to look back and see so clearly, which is the fact that Jesus, you did not just wash feet You made sinners servants of God. Jesus, that you would step out of heaven, put on flesh, live, die, and rise again so that we can know you is reason enough for us to turn around and serve other people. But here's what's true. We're selfish. We're self-consumed. We're worried about what other people think. And God, I pray that you would just overwhelm us with our gospel identity that what you say about us would matter most and that we would feel free to lay our life down for other people because you laid your life down for us. And through that, God, I pray that you would create a gospel movement in our city and on our campuses that as we love and serve one another, 
that more and more people would know you. We pray this in your name. Amen.